Welcome back to the Ownership Economy. This week, Jahid sits down with David Dow, founder of Gainforest and PhD candidate at ETH Zurich, to discuss how Gainforest is blazing the trail for valuing natural assets with bottom-up participation of land stewards. In the conversation, we cover what ecosystem services are, how they contribute to the economy, various ownership and property rights regimes for them, and what an equitable future looks like if we value ecosystem services inputs to global GDP. We also touch on data ownership, governance, and provenance. We hope you enjoy the episode. Thanks for joining me today, David. No worries. Thanks a lot for the invite. Yeah, I think you know you're a person I've wanted to talk to on the show for a long time because you have, you know, we've been chatting for about a year or so, I think almost. And uh, just what you do is so fascinating. And now to kind of get into the next stage of it and the details of it is really exciting for me. So thanks again, man. All right. Well, let's get into it, David. We'd like to start the show by getting to know your professional background a bit and also your personal one, if you care to share it, if, it's, uh, if you think it's relevant. So maybe you can tell us a bit about yourself and where where your story started. It's always difficult for me to understand where my story starts, actually, because I, I see myself as a part of a bigger story being told over several generations. Because my so because a lot of the motivation what drives me in life uh, um, originates from my family history. So my my parents they met on the ship. Um, so it's but it's not like a traditional love story. <laughs> yeah, it's funny you say that. I deeply <laughs> identify with this, but I want you to tell your story. So let's let's go with you, you first. Yeah. So they met on the ship, which was a refugee boat back in uh, in Vietnam. And the, the problem was, so my parents were born and raised in Vietnam as a Chinese minority, and after the war in Vietnam, that unfortunately um, the country where they lived in lost. Um, the country got overrun by by the other regime, and it was very difficult for them to live. And many people fled. Um, among them, my my parents, right? Um, they didn't know each other, but they they had some savings and they they used it to get into a legal like fishing boat, and that's where they met. They tried to cross the ocean, um, illegally from Vietnam to the Philippines and into Australia. Um, back then. So nowadays we, we have a name for these people. They are called Vietnamese boat people. But back then, no one, of course, knew how dangerous that really was. Statistically, we know now that 30% of the people who did this did not survive. It was very dangerous, like storms, pirates, disease. Um, and my parents' boat was exactly on these 30% that sank as well. So it was like sinking um, because it was crowded with 100 people where supposedly only like less than 20 should have been like placed in. And wow. out of nowhere, um, like a German fighter, and that's, we'll explain my German accent here over the podcast, picked them <laughs> up the ocean and saved them. And um, this German fighter, Hapanamur, which we, my sister and I, we grew up in the living room with this picture of this fighter. Uh, we always wondered why this thing is hanging. And um, this German fighter um, is actually an even more incredible story because it's not like a commercial fighter that just came out like and surprisingly popped up at the right place in the right location, right? No, it was actually um, while this whole refugee crisis was happening back in the 80s, 
um, and lots of people died in the seas. Um, governments were watching, no one acted. And so there were a group of like friends in Germany, four people, watching television from the other way around, seeing that crisis unfolding, governments not acting. And they decided to take their own time and their own money. Yes. Right. I, I love these stories, right? This is at the end of the day when someone goes like, we need to get someone to do something about this. But people yeah. who go, actually, we're going to do something about They're it. actually going to do this. <laughs> Amazing. So they rented this fighter, um, they took it out and they saved my parents and 10,000 other Vietnamese people. Um, and those are now living in Germany after a long legal battle, how to get into or not. But like, yeah, so so it's really because of them. Um, so in Wookiee language, I mean, I'm not sure if you're a huge Star Wars fan. Um, when someone saves a Wookiee, like an alien species, with life this wookie has a life death <laughs> towards the person who saved them and i feel like knowing the story and the, my family history i have a life that towards um the good people that that basically did this right that yeah. there's a lot of good people that saves people in their lives and mm -hmm. they have a life that you need to give back right? yeah how i see myself in my 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 history starting actually already. And also I talk to my sister a lot and she sees very similarly too. That's really cool, man, because I think the um the the story is a great way of showing how direct action right is really you know called for in the face of a lot of things like this. And I think it'll be very relevant to the climate stuff we get into as well, right? Because it's not anyone else's problem. It's it's all of ours deciding to do something about it right and this is just awesome I, so i deeply identify with this just because you know for me uh similar story um soviet afghan war um parents escaping afghanistan and uh getting asylum in the united states and for me i you know it's not like um the direct action part of it not not so involved in some ways yes i won't get into the details but what i deeply identify with is more about the it's almost a feeling of like every from from now on everything is just you know sort of on easy street <laughs> i can hear your parents went through that struggle everything from there is this like you know uh coasting downhill right <laughs> it's like um so i have that feeling too i'm very much grateful that that's the life i get to live right so right i think i think people ask me sometimes david why are you doing this like like unconventional lifestyle and like a career it's isn't that a lot of risk i'm like man if you knew like i'm not like taking any risks yeah exactly <laughs> if you knew what risk was my friend yes. you would not even be saying this right oh oh you have like you have these <laughs> degrees and you decided to do this non-traditional isn't that risky yeah if i uh, hopefully you should be as blessed that the only risk you ever have to take is career risk absolutely right? <laughs> i'm like you don't know what risk is exactly man totally absolutely like for me and you know that's really just a, a side note on it right it's like that's really the point is that a lot of people don't get the risk because they haven't had to take that kind of risk before yeah. or have that be backed into a corner where those are the actual risks you have to take right absolutely so, yeah absolutely yeah. Wow, that's awesome, man. So, okay, immigrant to Germany, asylum in Germany, I'm assuming at some point. Um, and then you, you know, you got into academia, you you went to school in Germany, you ended up BTH Zurich. Tell us a bit more about, you know, that that academic journey. 
Yeah, I mean, early on, I identified myself as a, a quite as a as a scientist. So, like as a, there was no question that I always wanted to become kind of a scientist. I was nerded out by the beauty of physics, and I know we share that. Um, and it was just something that deeply fascinated me throughout um, my whole like childhood, early adulthood, until now. Right, I. I I can't stop thinking about how beautiful it is to structure the things we observe into something that we can understand and predict. And also that can also help us structure our thinking to advance and build cool stuff. I just think this is fascinating. And knowing this early on, that is my identity, that I want to do science, improve like some something in the scientific path. Academia is, of course, the first choice to do this, right? Like, um, as a kid, the whole education system, is, I think some TED Talk funnily joked about it, is actually dedicated for you to end up as an academic professor. Like, this, all the skills you learn <laughs> are just dedicated for you to become a professor, like finishing tests, uh, writing papers, following orders. Yeah, writing your grants, writing them in on grants, time. <laughs> um, not taking too much risks, um, just studying. But I enjoyed that. So, um, and I was fascinated by the different, like, kind of perspectives of science. So I did computer science in uh, in Germany, uh, in a in a local university close to my hometown. And then I moved, got a little bit more brave, went to Munich, a little bit further from my hometown, to did my master. And then I got really brave and jumped over the ocean and uh, did in Boston several research studies um, on computational um, cell imagery. Um, bioinformatics, that was really fascinating science. And then I got a little bit more brave and I went to California to work on the science of self-driving cars in the corporate setting. And um, yeah, and I ended up doing uh, at ETH Zurich then to finish up my PhD on large-scale computer systems and artificial intelligence. So then somewhere along this research fellowship and going across the ocean here and there, you, it looks like to me, piecing it together, that you ran into blockchains. How did yes. how did your how did your journey get altered by this weird technology? Well, when I was in when I was in Silicon Valley to do all these self-driving cars, um, it struck to me. And one of the things about scientists being a scientist is you always observe things around you and try to like decipher what is the underlying cause. Um, and in San Francisco. Uh, everyone who has been to San Francisco knows the feeling of like everyone wants to change something. It's like a huge optimism in the sphere, a technocratic optimism. Um, everyone thinks like they're saving the world a little bit in a sense. But on the other hand, if you take that off, don't take your Google bus towards Mountain View, but actually walk down the streets of San Francisco, like in Tenderloin, you see the absolute opposite of what they are trying to intend by not understanding like there's huge homeless problem in san francisco there, there's mystery everywhere you see mm -hmm. and um it, for me it was very difficult to not see this as well right yes so i was trying to understand how can we work on self-trying cars <laughs> while there is so much mystery um how can we claim that we're saving the world with technology 
when you're not even caring about the person next to you. It's funny you say that because I worked in exactly that area that you're pointing out. I grew up in Fremont across the Bay, right? And so the big Afghan refugee community over there. And so then when my professional career started, I was taking the the BART into uh, you know, Powell Street Station and walking into walking down to uh, walking down through Soma. And this was 2014, 2015, when it wasn't so bad. You know, you'd only see four or five people on sleeping on the streets on your way to work and you might see some human excrement but people it's funny because every european I, t- I show this to or or who has seen it has your reaction where you're like wait excuse me like <laughs> sorry we're we're talking about making self-driving cars but is no one up is that did anyone else see the outside <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> like, it's, it's super funny. and then when you show when you talk to americans about this it's like not their problem oh it's just because the mayor's bad or something right like, i'm like it's, yeah no? it's, it's really interesting how, how it how it sort of comes together right and so okay so you were seeing this then how did how did blockchain arouse your interest i can guess but i'm sort of i'm really interested to see how that then you know you had this experience and then you're like TLDR blockchains. What happened? <laughs> I wanted to see what technology actually can like like socially impact people, right? Like, you know, like it's like before that, I've focused a lot on artificial intelligence. That's where my background lies. Where I early on chose during my studies to focus on AI, um, which was a nice move. <laughs> like in hindsight, now seeing all the trouble, but like AI itself is not a technology that is very social. It's like a predictive technology and we can later talk about the details of it. Would love to nerd about it. Um, but the technology that is social that could coordinate potentially things, that was something that that I think was kind of lacking and I, I, I was trying to find it. And that whole experience working in, in San Francisco made me, made me really try to f- look for a field for my third endeavors that supports communities, um, supports people needs, because that's where I realized that's what I want to do, right? Um, and then I was for a very long time looking for this kind of technology, this kind of problem where I can actually use my knowledge to the greater good for people instead of the greater good for corporates. Um, and I found it in a most random place you can guess. And that's how I started my, like this, this professional career is like second professional career of mine, I would say. I found it in um, a hackathon in the in the UN COP climate change back in 2017. Um, they, they just had a really ridiculous, like uh, outrageous proposal. They said like, how can like blockchain technology save the climate, right? I'm like, okay, blockchain technology. <laughs> What is that? Climate, how, how does that even relate to each other? And I have neither experience of one or the other. <laughs> yeah. I, but it was, I was so curious. And I, I attended this hackathon, which was well organized. It was a, in a ship to be sustainable. Uh, and you were like hacking on the ship three days with lots of participants from all around the world. You had like really input talks from founders like the founder of iota for example gave like an insight of like blockchain technology and tangle and um stuff like this and yeah um, in those three days i learned a lot about the blockchain concepts climate change itself forests and the importance of forests and i came up with an idea that uh that is game for us um amazing what i've been doing now ever since and that idea one 
the whole hackathon, the grand prize. And we were able to also, for the very first time, attend the COP as a prize to present our project. So that's how it really all started, this, this point where I was seeking for a social technology, for a problem to work on, and randomly it appeared in this one advertisement in Facebook, actually, where I saw it and said, okay, I, I'm going to sign up. Okay, so we can't blame Facebook's AI for everything bad. <laughs> that's nice. Okay, that's nice. Uh, you just backed into how it, how it forms. That's a really fascinating story. How you're like, you just had this confluence of, you know, not it's almost as if you didn't you, you didn't really know that this could be used in that way someone had to be like hey this is an idea this is a weird thing right had to be put in your face right and then you're like wait a minute what that's okay and it's credit to you to have a little bit of a the curiosity of a, a scientist to be like i'm gonna go explore this and see what they're talking about right and not because, you know, now on this side of 2023, you're still kind of having the conversation of like, uh, you know, blockchains are bad for the environment. Uh, how or, you know, wait, blockchains and climate, what could those things possibly do have to do with each other? Right? Even though we have, you know, last week we had Toucan Protocol CEO Raph on the show. And obviously that self-explanatory if you've heard of the show to this today. But yeah, credit to you for kind of being 2017, but <laughs> go investigate this <laughs> let's see yeah it's like it. it's like compared to the risk our parents are a bit like this is not risk this is just like okay curiosity let's just yeah, of course go with the flow right right let's see exactly and actually it's funny you say that too because i feel like our parents i'm not going to speak for your parents my this is definitely my parents though is that when when they had to take the risk to get us somewhere like say out of a war zone or you know into a stable situation um, it's funny how they also, in some ways, don't necessarily see, they're like, I took all of the risks, so you don't have to take them, right? <laughs> so like, they come in like, this is why now that we're here, you should be a doctor, lawyer, engineer, or, you know, nurse something, right? You should be doing that. What are you doing? Right? It's super funny how it comes around. Every, every time I travel to one of our project sites in Gainforest, yeah. my parents get outrageous if I don't tell them exactly when I land, when I come back. <laughs> It's so dangerous that you go to, I don't know, Paraguay. So dangerous. I'm like, um. <laughs> That's so funny. It's like, yeah, and, uh, it's funny. It's almost as if their risk profiles are have, have changed to like the, you know, uh, the, the immigrant, like native risk profile. Like, oh, well, now they're native to this area. Of course, I'm in Germany. You should not be doing this. You should be doing the normal <laughs> thing, right? And my parents are exactly the same. My mother was a doctor, right? So like, you know, becoming a scientist was like, you know, that was like the second place thing for, for her when I was going through biophysics. And then she's like, what are you doing now? <laughs> it seems like you're doing fine. I don't have to worry about you anymore. It's pretty funny. There were a few years there where you're like, I don't know about this. But, uh, but getting back to Game Forest now, um, tell, so you already mentioned you had the idea for Game Forest. Uh, you had this background in AI. There's this notion that the UN and maybe the WEF, who has also been doing this World Economic Forum, has been thinking about this a bit too, of how can we use blockchains to address the climate problem? Um, what is GameForce? It came about in this hackathon. What, what is it and what, did it, and what has it become? GameForce is like at its core, a super simple concept to explain. So when you donate, when you finance forests currently, um, the, um, Payments for ecosystems, for example, this is how the UN defines its payments for forests. You need to finance forests because they're getting cut down otherwise. So you're usually saying, hey, if you don't cut down this forest, please 
uh, then you get this and this money. And sometimes people are coming with helicopters full of money because these forests are really, really like faraway regions, landing there and giving that money out to communities. Like that's how it's been implemented in the UN case. But paying out this ecosystem service is super, um, super, super um, slow. You need to verify. You need to, it's just a lot of, not a lot of trust, right? Like um, the the payer, the donor doesn't trust that the communities actually preserve the forest. They need to like really check two, three, four, five, ten times. The communities don't really rely that the donor actually going to pay because they get frustrated. This whole process can take 10 years or longer, right? So super slow. Um, what game for does is, well, the donor has to commit to, to pay. So instead of paying directly to the forest, you pay to an escrow account. That escrow account can be implemented in many ways. We use the blockchain technology because it has these really decentralized like advantages that no one has access to the escrow account provably. And then we use um, an impact metric, like a measurement that the donor can decide with the community, such as avoided deforestation. And you can measure this very accurately nowadays through satellite imagery uh, at almost a daily basis. And that information is fed back to the escrow account. And whenever some kind of condition is fulfilled, like trees have not cut down in six months, nine months or um, longer, then the money flows out. In that way, not only do we turn around impact, the question of impact, because when you donate, you don't know what the impact is, you basically donate first after the impact was measured. So you can trace back the donation, the causality of the donation through the impact that is measured. Mm -hmm. And second, there's a very trustworthy channel that is now established between the donor and um, the forest conservation project. And that is very what Enforce cool. does. So let's talk a little bit about ecosystem services. What are they? Ecosystem services is our uh, approach of trying to understand the value of ecosystems, that means nature, wetlands, like wetlands, oceans, the environment we're living in, um, that unfortunately is not measured currently somehow in our market system. So like, we take things like fresh air or clean water absolutely for free and granted. So it's not even incorporated in our capitalistic approach, which is why we have strategies like the commons where everyone tries to overfish in ocean because it's free. Everyone tries to cut down the forest because it's uh, it's commons. If I don't cut it down, my neighbor's cutting down, right? Ecosystem services like, hey, stop, stop, stop. Look, ecosystems have multiple really important issues we can, we can address, right? They are supportive. So they provide food. They are really important in soil formation, in clean water, right? Uh, biodiversity they're supporting a whole biodiversity so these forests are supporting habitats there's a value they're provisioning they're providing you wood pollination is increasing your agricultural yield fish right they're regulating there's like they're storing carbon which is like nowadays one of the biggest ecosystem services we can currently set a very clear price on actually and they purify water clean air and most importantly i think also oftentimes forgotten is they're very cultural um, mm. Like if you go to like forest, you're getting inspired. In Ger in the German language, we have words that are originating from the forest, from the fact that you walk into the forest, like Wald Einsamkeit. It's a German word that describes the feeling of you walking into a forest and feeling like wow, it's we have a word, oh. and uh, many other cultures have words for linked to the forest because it's so culturally important to 
the generation of ideas, um, religion and uh, beliefs. And that's values that we currently label, except for carbon, label with a zero dollar price. And that's why we can cut it down. And ecosystem services tries to really say, stop, each of them have values and we need to now figure out what is the value. Mm, okay, got it. And you know, the trick question, we've talked about ecosystem services in the podcast before, but I really wanted to hear your answer to it. And that was a really great answer, actually. So I think the key, one of the key points to hone in on during in your answer is that it sounds like in the current state of ecosystem services, there hasn't really been much to measure their input right, to the rate, not just their input, just measure them, period, right? So carbon might be the most advanced one that we know of right now. But uh, there are some, you know, some other, you know, other parts of it we'll get to. But um, what has really been done, I guess, to, to to double down on this point currently to measure their input to the economy and to just measure them? It's super difficult to measure it because in order to measure it, you need two things, which oftentimes markets don't have a lot. First, you need very good data on ecosystems in order to do the decision. And second, you need very good science on understanding the uh, the biological processes, the, the the flow interdependence between, for example, your your flower that is growing, your crop that is growing in your farm, and the pollination structure of the of the bee colony next to it. Right, we need that science, and all of this is there, but it's in its early stages because there is first lack of funding to do this. Scientists don't care about the market's approach too much, while the market doesn't care too much about the pollination structure of bees, yeah. right? So there's this lack of funding, which basically creates also a lack of methodologies that result from the science that we created and the data we accumulated. And that makes everything really, really difficult to measure. There are people who are doing great work, um, like Professor Christian Daly from, from Stanford, who has been approaching it with the natural capital approach, like they build software like invest that um, you can put in like a spatial region of a, of a wetland of a coastal, and then you can put in some models that model flows and cycles and put in some market data to give you uh, some numbers. But there's agreed, like if you, for example, read the newest UN resolutions on how to measure market, like everyone wants to measure ecosystem services, but they all know. And if you read the documents, there's always an asterisk saying, we have not found an agreed upon method yet. That's good. Well, um, can you give it? Maybe you know this um, off the top of your head. Can you maybe give us a range of value that ecosystem services provides the economy. Do you know that number range off the top of your head? In terms of I, dollars? Not at the top of the head, but like I, I remember a VEF study saying 50% of the G global GDP relies on nature, right? And oh. I'm like, no, that's absolutely not true. It's 100% of the GDP <laughs> relies on nature. So I, I personally would just say all of all of the GDP of humanity relies on nature, if you're really serious, if you really look yeah. at the So like, there's no value that you're literally accumulating that does not interdepend or rely somehow on nature. So, so yeah, but like explain it to a banker. Yeah, <laughs> that's good. As I, I was looking it up while you were talking, yeah, so it looks like global GDP was about 100 trillion in 2022. And then 
um i have heard so your numbers pretty your estimate is pretty spot on i have seen in some other uh publications that i've mentioned in the pod there's a famous one by uh, Costanza and co-authors, I think it was 2017 or 2011, I'll have to look it up. I can put it in the show notes, but their estimates were 16 to $54 trillion um, of input. That's just an input to the economy, right? So that's not saying like, we're not saying that nature produced this GDP, we're saying it enabled the production of 16 to $54 trillion of, of GDP. As you said, that's, you know, that's astronomical, right? So the, the, the markets might not care about the complexity of the, of the bees' interactions with the <laughs> forest, but they certainly care about the honey, right? Like they do know. care about the honey. Yeah, and so <laughs> you have to find a way to say, you know, I, I like to make this tangible in in other ways when I'm either speaking to you know either founders or investors or whatever, where it's like you right now our only real incentives to say the timber in that forest and the palm oil that it has and the coconut oil that it has and the, all these things, these are worth something on that market. But there's no way for you to say that stuff actually creates this much honey downstream or this much biodiversity that enables supporting the creation of 10 years of harvest 10 years down the line, right? So like, there's no way to price that, right? And it, it's a difficult thing to do. But if you actually, I've always said, if you are a fan of markets, you should actually excuse my friends you just shut the fuck up and try to calculate the numbers <laughs> like like if uh, otherwise you just have a hyper simplified market that's really only good at extraction and that's fine as long as we understand that's what you're that's what you have right <laughs> like sure oh, even the simplest number yeah i mean let's talk a little bit about climate change because it's yeah. that it's such a simple number it's the number of co2 we are still able to emit before we face planetary destruction like it's a physics limit right and the fact that it's a physical limit like it's 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 given by nature given by okay hey guys so much is left it's um even bitcoin is more valuable with a synthetic limit arbitrarily induced by a computer program than it is currently because we're still emitting more and more co2 no one cares about this right even though there's a physics limit given like a real scarcity given to you um by nature and i think it's it's simply um it's, it's a huge market failure it's 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 a collective failure in so many ways yeah mm. it needs to be attacked in so many ways yeah if we divert a little bit here it's an interesting thing to to chat about is like this uh this commons problem the strategy that commons right like uh just to be clear just to mm, set the stage a little bit about that right is the original tragedy the commons problem was uh put together by garrett hardin and his position which has clearly been proven to be wrong in Absolutely. the in the decades that come after it is that oh if you don't have a state to manage something it's going to be mismanaged and that's Absolutely. just straight up not true like we've eleanor uh, El ostrom's work martazas villies there's a whole bunch of people who've been working on this problem to show actually people can coordinate their resources in the absence of a state and in the absence of a central coordinating body that has to exercise violence to say this is that person's that person what comes from that argument is of course that private property rights and public uh and public ownership are not the only two ways to do this right and so then we zoom out coming back to your you know your question on climate change you know where, where the climate change question is like whose problem is it 
and it's it's everyone's problem and no one would no one's problem in the way that we treat it right today basically and its outcomes but it opens up the space of new forms of ownership in my opinion which i think yeah. that are basically like saying you know i'll give you a very specific example i was at um the, the economist uh, impact world ocean summit a few weeks ago Mm-hmm. And there was a chief sustainability officer from Standard Charter, I forget her name, but she was basically talking about uh, how it's hard, difficult for finance to invest in oceans because oceans are common pool resources that aren't owned. You can't own the underlying assets, right? The way you can own a forest, right? And so that calls into question um, ownership, asset yield, all kinds of things like this. If you run with that, it creates a world of privately owned oceans right and that's also not something you quite necessarily you don't you don't necessarily want because uh, an ocean privately owned might have its yields pointed only towards profit for shareholders right. which which then recreates the situation where you can't say but what is the profit possible from looking at the natural capital resources from this over a longer time scale if we only provide future discounted profits as the only metric for ownership then this i really see is playing the the what we've done to you know topsoils and forests and grasslands just playing it out in the ocean absolutely <laughs> yeah yeah i i do think the 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 ownership is such an important um thing to define because conflicting ownership results also in destructive like destruction of forests unclear ownership the results in the destruction of forests um what we observed so it really needs to be clearly defined. And currently, as you correctly said it, like the models we have for ownership is just not, not doing it. Like create either like um, it's relies too much on the state or it relies too much on, on, on private like capitalistic incentives that again, don't incorporate these ecosystem services and you will end up with, with um, like a dead end, right? Basically. And then, you know, not, and like you said, or poorly defined ownership or unclear ownership, those things also can potentially be solved and they're solved by private property rights. And even some of the stuff that you've seen in the literature around this proves it out, but it's not the only solution, right? It's not like saying, hey, uh, we should only be doing, we should turn the world into someone's property, right? And it's like, I can see that not playing out quite so well. (laughs) And I think that comes back (laughs) to what you said about forests. So Tell us a little bit um, about, you know, if we're talking ownership in forests now, can you tell us a little bit maybe about one of your projects? Like who who are the stakeholders that are involved in these things? So because we are existing ever since this hackathon um, and then we are trying to build stuff um, from this initial idea, we were able, very fortunate to work with multiple kind of stakeholders where I think just, just gives us like in a like an idea of um, how different actors are like, like um, and how they act, how fast things are. So for example, we're working with the government of Paraguay in a, in a region very close to the national park of the Defensores del Chaco, um, 1,000 hectares, literally neighboring it. And we're pledged to jointly, collectively raise funds to increase its endeavors and its protection mechanisms here. But it's very slow because it's the government, right? Um, I mean, no one surprises here uh, that that this is a very slow work in progress. I think we achieved fantastic progress given the, the difficulty of the task. 
Um, but we compare this, for example, with partners that are very small NGOs. We have one project in the Philippines where we just met uh, the founder, Camille, big ass woman, like, wow, such an inspiration. And she manages, she founded and manages a team of five people on her own, which is an NGO called Oceanus, mm -hmm. active all over the Philippines and the coastal regions um, for three years. And she's been moving way faster than we are moving. And we are in Web3. She's like kicking our asses and say, hey, David, when, when, when are we going to do the next measure to earn incentives and stuff like this? So she's pushing us. And um, you have two different kind of like uh, stakeholders. And there's a whole, I would say, almost a variety in between that, right? Like you, depending on the partners you're working with. One, for example, in Bhutan, um, the Ecological Society in Bhutan we're working with, where Bhutan is currently planting a million trees um, and they want to understand the ecosystem services as well, potential funding uh, from investors. Um, that's also a very nice partner we have in the middle between state and NGO, basically. It's the official ecological society of Bhutan. So you can see really it moves faster, but it's not, nothing compares to Camille, for example. And that's super interesting to see. Very interesting. So then, like, it, it by the sound of it, then the stakeholder makeup... Uh, the network that's involved in this varies widely depending on the geo depending on the type of project stuff like that so if you're then you know when we zoom out and literally zoom out because some of the stuff you're you're observing it from space <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> yes. um, you're you by that scale you're able to say hey let me just make this really simple because these guys who donate to to conserve forests for their ecosystem services they just want to know if the forest is there so that they're not getting swindled. And the people locally, they just want to get paid for the thing that they're either already doing or want to start doing more of. And so when you look at aligning even those stakeholders, right, it, at this level, I mean, you know, I'm probably I'm leaving a bunch of people out here potentially because the folks on the ground who are doing the work could be multiple 10, 15, 20 different indigenous groups in the same land who don't consider the land being anybody's right so it's right. uh so then that complicates payment so i wanted to ask you if you have a you've designed a mechanism that you know either you know as an escrow could be a smart contract whatever however you've implemented it in aligning with real world stakeholders what have you folks done or what are you experimenting with to ensure that some of the folks who are involved in this at the end of the day are either either protected or their interests are you know managed Personally, for me, this is the most fascinating question. And I feel like we need more of this last mile research, right? Like no scientist cares about the last mile. Everyone wants to just go the first mile and that's it. But the last mile is super fascinating because now we're talking about, okay, cool concept, money goes into a donor, but like from a donor to a, to a project, but how does it really go to the project, right? right? Like, because it's, it's like internet crypto wonder money, right? Like <laughs> what does it... Why does it help the, yeah. the people who, who never heard about, I don't know, Bitcoin, yeah. Salo, like maybe they sometimes hear about Bitcoin, but that's it, right? So super interesting problem. Um, and we worked with multiple solutions over the last uh, couple of years. In the region in Kayapo, for example, the indigenous community we're working in Brazil with, in order to pay out, um, you need local partnerships, with um, so there's a main NGO that receives the funds, um, and that NGO basically has partnerships with local supermarkets that 
are okay with a delayed payment as long as um, it comes. And then local Kayapo indigenous people who are protecting the forest, they get a proof that they protect this forest serving in the guard post with a letter of paper of receipt signed mm -hmm. by the guard post like authority. They can come with this paper. This paper is their money. They can go to the supermarket. There's agreement with the supermarkets. They can get some fund and then the supermarket will collect these papers, these coupons, wow. and later on will pay out. So this is a system that is established to make this internet money work. Another way we tested out in the Philippines uh, with Camille um, is to basically have, and that's kudos to Cello for that. They have a strong partnership in the Philippines where people can actually come to the, these areas um, at a certain scheduled time and they take in the cello and they give out the money like as, an, as a walking ATM, basically. Nice. That also works. And that's something we tested out as well, where a community member can receive, Valor is actually quite easy to install in many ways, receive that money on their, on their like cello wallet app. And then they go to this person, this banker, and uh, this walking ATM, I call him or her, <laughs> and send that and exchange it in, in, in real. And um, that also was quite a very, very fast process. It took yeah. a couple of minutes to do this. So That's funny. Because I think uh, this walking ATM notion that you're bringing up is, I don't know, if you haven't spent time in any non-European, non-wealthy you know, North American society, you will never encounter this, but it's quite common, like um, especially across, let me make sure I get this right, because I, I don't want to get borders mixed up here. But um, basically, if you're in Western to Western Africa, Western and Central Africa, if you're going across Nigeria, Ghana, and, and Uganda, Benin, these, Chad, these, these places, you're going to have plenty of people who just have these kiosks set up to run, almost run physical money from one place to another. If you're like at, in a in a border jurisdiction or in a market or something, just because yes, there is mobile money, yes, there is in pesa, but these things are still quite these are still used quite a bit. There's a reason why you know there are still African, uh, North African and Western African fintechs that are being incubated every day to address this. This uh, I wouldn't I wouldn't call it a problem. I'd say some people just want digital money and some people don't. <laughs> right? So like. Um, so that's a thing to really say, like, if you haven't encountered this, it happens all the time. It's like all <laughs> over the world, right? So like we, if you're listening to this and you're like, oh, that's really good. Walking ATM, that's an interesting concept. It's like, no, no, it's like probably more predominant than ATMs. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Depending on if you're Southeast and Central Asia or, you know, North Africa or what have you. So, yeah. Uh, so, so that's, that makes a lot of sense and how, you know, you, how you've tried to go the last mile to ensure that there's no no people feel hard done by or there are no conflicts and no real issues getting payment to the people who are doing the work right that's awesome and so there's a lot of more to talk about this there's also a way to okay, who gets paid what way do they get paid because you'd want to also one important thing is you want to preserve the social hierarchies that exist naturally in these communities you don't want to disrupt them. So we oftentimes actually rely on the NGO to implement. We trust the NGO because the NGO is our trusted partner on the communities. The communities are not going to trust us. We're not 
suddenly coming into a forest. And that's, I think, a lot of... Um, Free money for everyone in the forest. Exactly. That's not how it works, right? You need to establish trust. Um, that takes years sometimes. And if you really want to support and have the most impact, you go through a trusted partner and you really trust the partner that they know the hierarchies you work with them. And for example, um, initially, we wanted to pay the Kayapo like town per town, closest to where they protect the forest. And then they're like, no, David, this is not <laughs> you will create like conflict between us. We should not do this. We all share a pot, right? And in the Philippines, for example, we uh, we learn from these lessons as well. So when they measure trees, and um, one way to receive the funds is through measuring the trees. Um, we didn't send them out individually because that would create a conflict between the competition. But instead, we we had teams of two, and then we had a super linear reward that said, okay, when you all together collect more than this number of trees, you all get a little bit more, right? So there's okay. a much more collective approach in this. And these are really important ideas that we need to, uh, we need to think further, like super linear rewards, uh, respecting uh, social hierarchies that exist if you talk about last mile. Mm -hmm. If you don't even look at last mile, if you've never been to this sites, you don't even know these problems exist, right? Like if you just design your protocol, <laughs> on, on uh, solidity you don't think about this you're like okay whoever gets like money uh, grab it for free but this yeah. is destructive in many ways well, that's actually a really important idea that you would never really know unless you had like a ux researcher or anthropologist or just listen to the ngo so that's like that's awesome man that makes a lot of sense and so that actually goes right into the a little bit about what you were talking about which i wanted to focus on that is now you're you have the actually you have a couple different measured sounds like you have measure to earn you know like and now we get a real we just got heard a really specific concrete example of what that looks like it's you're sending folks out in twos they're measuring trees maybe they have their android or you know whatever phone and you are getting that data so tell us a bit more about this what what are they actually measuring right so let's go back to the escrow account and that that's prediction, that impact evaluator that gives all the money, that impact evaluator can be very customized. And one of the things we learned early on is satellites really good for like just conserving large scales of forests. But if you want to have more fine granular impact, like the ecosystem service we talked about, right? Carbon, freshwater, biodiversity, you need to have field data or you need to have, a, you have, you need to have a multiple layers of data, satellites, drones, field measurements. Field measurements, one of the most difficult things to receive. Um, you need people on the ground to, to do so. And measure to earn, what measure to earn is, is it's treating the need for field measurement not as free data, but as fair labor. What we are seeing is, okay, this data is super important for so many things, um, but this data is super difficult to collect. This is work, so this work needs to be paid. And what measure to earn does is basically it says, we pay you for every single uh, tree measurement that you do. It's part of the Gainforce escrow account, but at the most fine granular level you can imagine, every single image data upload unlocks a little bit of the funds, right? And um, we started paying the communities in the Philippines 33 cents per mangrove tree. They capture, measure, and uh, determine the species of. But then we realized very early on, this is <laughs> this is really cheap. Like this is very strenuous work. Like the mangroves, are, I don't know if you have into a mangrove, but like mosquitoes, like sometimes there are alligators. You need to oh, yeah. a certain type of time because the tide needs to be low. Otherwise, like you don't know if there's a snake coming up. Very strenuous. 
Um, so we like for this special purpose that was financed by Cello. Thank you so much. Um, we we doubled the the reward for for these committees and paid them sixty six cents. But that really was a was a test run in many ways because we never did the escrow account in such a fine granular level. Um, but it was I think super successful. Within two days, we managed to capture three hundred mangrove images, and we had a small other test pilot we did which is planting seedlings, which we also took pictures of. And that was also able to plant 400 seedlings as well in two days. So it really engages, accumulates the community and makes them active, um, like actors in, in, in a certain way. And at the same time, it also educates them. So like they are usually the ones who also go into the forest and cut it down, right? Because yeah. of firewood. Yeah. So if they suddenly realize, and we, if the hope is that we do this repeatedly, it's very cheap, actually. Costs us like three hundred dollars to do this whole thing. Yeah. If we do this repeatedly over time, like another month again, like another six months again, we hope to establish some kind of a deeper connection that says, okay, wow, okay, this tree I just photographed like a couple like months ago. If I can take a picture of it again, I get more money. So better not cut it down. That's the hope. That's the incentive I want to create in in these communities. Yeah, and then also just. Uh it can't just be a western thing that says you should like the forest right <laughs> it's like we're all sitting up here you know i'm surrounded by wood in this in this, in this <laughs> building right um you you kind of want to make sure that there's a global intrinsic um understanding of like how much we need these things so that it's not purely motivated by money but of course pay them right that's not right. argument to not pay them um, <laughs> and so then so your, your system is capturing all kinds of data that probably the people who are really interested in ecosystem services, natural capital evaluation, all these really, really love to have this data, right? So like, um, what what does it do getting into your system a bit? What uh, what else are you doing with this, right? Because this is a question that I think is a, it's a problem that is near and dear to your heart as well on the science side, right? Like yeah. being able to say like, hey, we measured some trees. What are they doing? So what do you what does it what does it feed into on your side of the system? Like, what are you doing with this data? We train algorithms for that. So as a so for me, I think the data is super valuable because it's absolutely lacking in many ways um, in this area of the world. If you look at biodiversity data, tree measurements, most of it is concentrated heavily in North America, in European forests, because we have the infrastructure, we have the money to collect these kind of like um, registries of tree measurements and nature measurements, um, because it's also in the interest of the local government to do so. But if you're going to like a city like Bandung, for example, in Indonesia, they don't know where their urban trees are lying. Like, and this is like... <laughs> It's incredible to imagine that we know, for example, for like Zurich, Switzerland, every single urban tree that has ever been planted from the day it's been planted, the growth it has, everything's measured, right? But then you have a city in the middle of the rainforest, they don't know where the trees are. Like they just, just don't, there's no incentive for them, right? So because there's a lack of data, the algorithms that you develop on that, and I'm shouting out here on Silvera and others, are going to be very biased when yeah. it comes to predicting um, carbon estimates of this certain region or um, 
any kind of value you want to sell, right? Like any kind of prediction you want to sell, they're going to be very biased because if biased data comes in, biased algorithm comes out. This is just a fact from science. Established a lot of papers on this. Done. So need, the only way you can measure this uh, bias is you need to have an equitable benchmark, with fair data, where you can test out your algorithm and you can detect and de-bias your algorithm. And then you need to also collect data that has been lacking from these areas, like the tropical areas, in order to retrain your algorithm to be less biased. Because again, if it's biased, it means that it's just not usable for decision-making. You don't want to have biased decision-making that reflects um, potentially large trillions of dollars of nature financing, right? You need to make that really, really fair and equitable. Otherwise, we're just recreating even more harm than we, we want to prevent. Plus, you're kind of honing in on the fact that this is already biased, right? Because the biggest uh, biggest data sets are coming from, you know, North American and European, probably old growth forests and stuff like that. So, like, we, we've actually got to act even faster to ensure that we can make accurate measurements of forest ecosystem services you know, world over because you can't just take a um if you're just talking about even just the voluntary carbon market or something you can't just take plug and play a methodology off the shelf and say oh here's one that was done for a forestation and and i'm not going to care where it was where it was written for i'm just going to throw it down here in the tropics is not going to work right and then maybe that project fails or its measurements are nowhere near what they need to be and you're like ah these these tropical people they can't figure this out it's <laughs> like that's kind of that's, you know, you that's a, what you don't want to end up at no i give you an example as a scientist we published last two years ago yeah. uh, together with the wwf switzerland um a case study in ecuador where we measured every single tree in six red plus sites in ecuador 4685 trees and then from that tree we know the carbon the species we could calculate the exact carbon of the site and then we queried all the satellite imagery that are commonly used right now, Global Forest Watch, Santoro, Spawn, that are currently available for us to look into. We are not available to look into Pachama, we are not available to look into Severa, but we are able to look into the, uh, this, the state of the art from science, and they overestimate on average five to 10 times the carbon in these areas. So just want to say that. No, actually, yeah, so this is, this is just not okay. Um, so wow. there's a huge error. And if you do the same thing, Global Forest Watch, on, in the US, it's a one-to-one -one match. <laughs> it's ah, almost perfect. Same. So I have, I have this saying, I've been opening a lot of my talks over in the last six, nine months or so by saying, um, I'll eventually get to a little spot of it where I go, hey, you know, like there's a lot of controversy and what have you in the carbon markets and the biodiversity and have you, but there, the problem is that they have been in design from inception for greenwashing, right? And it's not anyone's fault necessarily, but this is a great example. It's like, hey, we just did that thing there, one-to-one -one match. We did it here, and it's off by a factor of 5 to 10x. And then it, you follow that through the entire sort of data chain that results in a credit being issued. And of course, no one in that chain is incentivized to say, we should build a new methodology. We should do this more accurately. They're like, hey, we already invested in starting the project. Can you just put the credits out there let's sell them and we'll figure out who's holding the bag later <laughs> right like, correct yeah so and this, this is just the very first like the the, the peak of the iceberg we just unveiled yeah. and i think there's so much more if you just measure it correctly yeah uh, i don't want to even think about it well measuring correctly i think let's continue with that a bit more so like carbon trees but 
you know, recently there's been a lot of other, uh, there's been a lot of uh, movement behind measuring other things, biodiversity and ocean, uh, ocean aquaculture, things like that, ocean ecosystem credits. Uh, besides carbon, what other things can this mechanism measure? And, you know, maybe the implication is it won't always be called game forest. <laughs> <laughs> it started as a hackathon project. The mission was still very limited back then, but like, I, I do see your point. <laughs> I think um, we are the most regulated in carbon right now, right? Because yeah. we should these financial assets come credits, come offsets that are in the balance sheets of people. So that had had a very... I wouldn't even say well-documented. I would just say like a complex documented methodology. Um, we don't have this for other services that are not being bought. We don't have this for the pollination of bees, unfortunately. We don't have this for, for clean water. So we have no agreed upon standard on measurement here. While the, measure, the agreed upon standard on measuring carbon is also not perfect because we assume every, every tree is a cylinder. We're using something called an allometric equation, yeah. where if you go to the tropics, no tree is like a cylinder. They're, like <laughs> a, they're more like a, I don't know, complex geometric shape from physics. Yeah. Like, so you already have a lot of error in this measurement, but it's agreed upon. People are like, wow, well, let's not talk about this, right? But for biodiversity, for example, the new, I would say, next big candidate to become a financial nature asset the measurement of biodiversity, we don't have an agreed upon way to measure it there, but there are multiple methodologies and indicators that are competing with it. So the IUCN red list, which is a list given out by the IUCN that says which animals are the most threatened or which ones have to be the most conserved. And there's the number of species, just the richness, we call that, how many kind of different kind of species do you detect in what numbers? And that can be dissected into different kinds of ways, genetic diversity and just like just the animal itself. But also let's don't talk about the animal because sometimes we don't even see the animal. Let's just measure the DNA that is in this area and just measure mm -hmm. how diverse the DNA is, right? So there are all these competing different kinds of like um, indicators that also if you look at the global biodiversity framework, they're all listed as, hey, you can use this, 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 this here. These are like available for you to measure, um, but we don't have an agreed upon standard. And I don't think for biodiversity, there is one, to be honest, um, because biodiversity in its name is diverse. So um, we just need to, politics just, regulators just need to tell us this is this is the thing currently that is uh, what we want. And then science will provide you like with, here are the ones that are the closest currently. And we might update them in, later on but pick yeah i think there and there are it's it there's you know cop 15s in montreal recently had a lot of um you know put a lot of momentum behind this and there's uh i believe there are there are a number of these i'll have to check my notes because i have i'm you know we're talking to tnfd and there's a bunch of um a bunch of folks in this area that are really focusing on nature data and but the problem, like you said, is we can capture a whole bunch of it, but then like if we have a standard, do we have a standard for the data and sort of understanding its value and how and what it means? Because <laughs> we can capture any number of things, right? But uh, but the meaning behind it is uh, in, in its value. That's all things that we assign it in some ways. Like we can say, 
Oh yeah, it's good that this particular strain or strains of soil bacteria have increased. Good for what? <laughs> like good how? <laughs> it's like so. Like if you want, if I give you my two cents, my personal two cents here is that none of the complicated methodologies will survive because we've seen this in the carbon marketplace. If you have something that is so complicated to understand for a company, then the company just have to trust Vera that they done their job good because they have no time or expertise um, to double check anything that has been done. And we've seen where this ended up. We've seen that the incentives of Vera earning additional money every credit they issue is obviously a bad incentive because then they uh, in, intend to like issue way more than they should be of right course. and this fake transparency hidden through complexity makes mm-hmm. things really hard to understand if you look and, at them yeah oh sorry go ahead you're saying if you look at if you look at the most successful indicators like okay <laughs> a price which is thus demand and uh, a supply very simple to understand, very clear for us to understand. We need to have metrics and indicators that are that are humanly like uh, expressible, right? They cannot be hidden by these equations. They have to be very, very easy to understand for a buyer to buy and trust. We're talking about trust. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, I think that's that's the way to go. So for example, biodiversity, we, we count um, on, on wildlife camp pictures. So we basically install cameras and whenever mm-hmm. an animal walks through, we have algorithms that can detect it. Okay, look, there's a Philippine pigeon. Philippine pigeon detected. Give it to you. Here. <laughs> no question asked. Super cool. Like just, just okay, here, look at it. And uh, I don't care. Personally, we don't care if that's going to be a standard or not, but we know from a data science perspective, you're going to need that data anyway. And I don't care what you're going to do with it. Process it in really complicated things, but the single measurement from where we start on, that's the easiest to understand for every human being. The measurement, the picture of a tree, measurement of an animal, and um, let's let's just start with this. Very clean, yeah. very rich. Uh, I, I like it from another angle because you know, not being a scientist about it uh, makes it such that if you if the very simple. Um, supply and demand indicators can be brought to a new market then and we can align them with something that approximates ecosystem health and value then that's fantastic right because we already understand that hey i'm trying to trying to get some biodiversity here how much is it going to cost <laughs> it's like <laughs> i have i have about uh, you know in, to give people an idea too just you know I, we don't want to get into this too much because this is not necessarily what you folks do but um you know there are the 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 reason why this is coming to be in a lot of ways is that there are a lot of industries with gigantic biodiversity impacts that can be directly traced to their presence and activity. So mining is one of them, right? Um, and commodities products in a lot of ways. So anyone that's in the supply chain, if you've had coffee or chocolate today, or or you're you're you've probably <laughs> We've spent 20 years telling you that if it's fair trade or something, you had no impact on the in the ecology, and that's just not true, actually. So <laughs> sorry, sorry to make you feel bad, but that's kind of where we're at. Yeah. And and so if you're running a mining operation, you're you now very soon will probably have to say, what did you do to the river and the watershed around you? What did you do to the air quality? What did you do to right. you know all this? And this is good because now you can actually price, you can have the full price 
of what it costs to pull cobalt, niobium, and other things out of the earth. Yeah. That's not that, right? No one is saying stop doing those things because I mean, talking to you on an app on an, on a knife on a on a MacBook, right? Like these these are things people want and need, what have you, right? So, but will they still want them when they cost forty two hundred dollars instead of two thousand, right. right? Like it will right. will you still you know take your SUV on a weekend jaunt instead of when it, you we need the oil for ammonia and plastics then that feed that feed people, right? So it's just about accurate pricing. Even if you believe in markets, getting to an accurate market price of what the that good is that we just take for granted. Yeah. No, I agree. Absolutely. So, like and we need for that we need transparency we need that data that is available to make that happen right so and again if you think about this in last mile like in the mining facility oftentimes the incentive of collecting this data is of course not that there right so they try to also hide this as well yeah so things to consider here yeah. that's a great actually place to begin to wrap it up then right is that we have there's all these issues that are have to be addressed that are also complex that are not, we're not even talking about the, the ecosystems now, we're talking about data and data governance and then the economics that results from this data, right? So if we have um, somewhat perverse incentives or if there's not aligned, misaligned incentives between say, I'm Rio Tinto, I love everyone uses Rio Tinto, I don't know why, but <laughs> you open up any South Pole or whatever thing, like Rio, example, Rio Tinto is doing stuff like, man, they must be saying they're going, why does everyone pick on us? But anyway, uh, you're, you're Rio Tinto, a massive international mining cor- uh, operation, I believe out of Australia, you have, um, you know, you have some of the opportunity collect to collect some of this data or not today, but maybe very soon you might have to, right? But but now you're David on the other side doing game forest or someone else is measuring biodiversity or tree and trees are also biodiversity. Yep. Um, this way, this data that we're collecting from, you know, some pretty vulnerable people on earth and people who don't even want to collect it. How do we ensure that this stuff is collected in and governed in a way that's open and has remained, you know, it remains usable for all people. And I actually wrote a whole PhD thesis on this. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's, but it's more on a very theoretical basis. Um, this is such a huge, huge question. And you can approach it from so many different kind of angles. But the one I like the most is um, I hate talking about data as gold or oil because like, oh, I just don't like these. Um, but it, it kind of, these analogies are quite helpful because you can, we can identify the value of the data in the, in many ways. Like surprisingly, we know the value of a barrel of oil very precisely, um, but we don't know it of a data point at all. We don't, data point value is usually task dependent. Um, and oftentimes the value of the data, of raw data is kind of useless. You need to process it. Like crude oil is actually useless and you need to process it and refine it. We have mm-hmm. data refineries that do so. I like to look at the value of data because of my background as an AI researcher in terms of um, human decision-making. So data, we've been collecting data since millennia, right? Like ever since we went to a cave and drew like our first like uh, deer that we just hunted, that's data collection. And then we talk and uh, with our ancestors share, but why do we do so? And so one of my uh, abstract ideas to, to understand this a little bit that is data helps us do better decisions, right? This is mm. one of its main value of data. And you can split up decision-making in human beings with two things, human judgment, like judging something and predicting something. 
So whenever you want to go out, for example, to uh, walk, take a walk, and you're looking at the weather, maybe it's going to rain, you're going to predict the probability that it's going to rain or not. And then you're doing a judgment how bad that would be if you're like getting wet. And the judgment results in the decision of taking the umbrella or not, right? Data helps us improve predictions. Um, so because the more data we can collect, the better we are in predicting the outcomes, the better we can evaluate things, and, and then we can do a judgment on this. And if you look at it in this value, like the value of like data improving like decision-making, then you can derive value from it in many ways, such as take away a data point, train your prediction algorithm again, see how badly it performs. The difference is a kind of a very, very well-defined value of it. Or um, take a different data set, right? We have five different data sets you can collect. Each of them um, get some predictions. Each of them uh, do some judgments and retroactively say, okay, which one of them gave you the most profit? Then you can also channel back the value to the corresponding data set to this. Um, and in many ways, this gives us a very principled understanding of the data, but it of course um, is not that helpful because this judgment is still so, so versatile. Like there's so many kind of subjects in the world where, where we judge things. Like it's basically the whole world is like, every time we do things, we, 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 we do decision-making. So data has to be also task specific, what we call a value of a data point comes from the task it's associated and it's proving on. Um, and all of these things are super difficult to understand, to link it to um, their frameworks. We, science is trying to do so. One comes from economics. It's called the Shetty value. It comes from cooperative game theory, where you're trying to understand from a coalition of players, which of the players was the most useful and given $100 and these players have like worked together, who earns what in a fair way, right? So in data variation, this is called, this is the field it's it's called. We are basically modeling this exact thing with players being a single data point. And then you're trying to value each data point in, in such a way that you're trying to understand the Shapley value of each data point. It's one of the scientific approaches to attract it. But wait, man, this this is this is just the angle from computer science I'm giving you. There's the yeah. angle from economics that talks about data being non-rival, right? Meaning that you can endlessly copy the data. So actually, like um, as an asset, that's of course, um, if it's endless, you have zero value, like water. <laughs> so you need to make sure that it's somehow kind of restricted. You can talk about from the angle from governance as you approach it, right? Um, who owns the data, what are intrinsic rights data points should have potentially. For example, should they be associated with its originator? Should it be uh, only used at a certain times? And I think all of these different kinds of perspectives of data, which we need to slowly talk about because our society is deeply data-driven, um, are emerging and they're going to all like um, interconnect with each other for a better understanding of the value of it. I think you touched on a lot of interesting points there too, because you can have something like if you're able to look at even something like a single tree picture that's a part of your smart contract that is then, you know, dispersed a payment, the you you are you kind of have you you created a really 
it's somewhat a reductionist approach, but it works in some to some extent to say what was the value of that tree data, <laughs> right? Well, yeah. actually, it was sixty-six cents or whatever. Exactly. Right? Like it's, <laughs> right, it's right there. And so then right the there. next question becomes: uh, Let's say that that data rolls up into becoming part of a bigger data set that the Natural Capital Project uses to build into a regional data set to value forests across Paraguay, Brazil, Manaus, or in or Minas Gerais or what have you. Now it's like, what did people use that data, that aggregate data set for later? Right. Right? And this is why data governance matters, because then that person who took that picture, it doesn't necessarily give them rights to 66 cents forever in perpetuity, but something approximating, you know, uh, some sort of extinction, some extinction curve that says after some point, it's now a part of the public domain or what have you. It it see, feels right to me, right? To say like, hey, we used it once, sure, but we continue to use it to make really valuable financial decisions. A hedge fund used it to do something, right? Like that should be something that is a part of the value chain that you participate in as the person who took the picture of it. Yeah. I, I like to see, the, I, I like to structure the value of data in actually four categories. Like any kind of value of a data point should be equitable. Like if you contribute data and I contribute data, we need to feel fairly treated about the quality of data we contributed in. So if you take a picture of a tree that is very beautiful and I take a picture of a cactus, I should not receive money, right? So it has to be equitable. It has, to be, it has to be task specific, as you said, right? It depends on the task it's underlying. Cumulative, because this data point is getting reused multiple times for different kind of tasks. So the value should accumulate in a way that makes sense and it should be um, scalable, right? Because like any kind of value of data you want to compute needs to be um, approached in a very scalable way as well. And this is the interesting angle on ownership, right? Is that what does ownership of data look like? It shouldn't necessarily, it shouldn't necessarily be a rent that's extracted forever, but it should be task specific. It should have provenance. It should be traced back to where it came from and the value should be recognized, right? So, you know, like we said, like you were talking about there, if I'm, I'm sure if you talk to a, a dozen people, did some sort of um, uh, ethnographic study where you said, hey, what do you think, what is the perception of the value that you created by doing, taking this, participating in this gain forest pilot? You took a picture of this tree, you were paid some money for it. Now, let me tell you five different parties that used it <laughs> for what purpose, right? A hedge fund used it to help a family office make a decision about some forests, right? Like uh, an NGO used it to write a white paper to receive donations for right. everything, right? All these other various, I'm sure, you can stack rank the value and say, well, the people who made a billion dollar decision with it should probably pay more than the people. Yeah, absolutely. Who <laughs> that equitable comes in, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. That's the thing I'm sure. I'd love to see a survey or something on that, just to see <laughs> how people value it. But I, I, my gut on this is almost certainly people are like, yeah, that seems right. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, cool, man. Well, I think this has been great, uh, David, catching up with you on this and kind of talking to you about you know, this sort of, ownership of data and the, the bleeding edge of data that you're kind of building out here for ecosystem services with Gainforce. This has been fascinating. Thanks for your time. Can you tell people where to follow you and Gainforce online if they're interested in learning more? So on Twitter, you can follow us on Gainforce now. Um, and then you can just visit gainforce.birth for our homepage. And then we have several apps you can play around. We are following the idea of open development. So when we fail, you're gonna like see us fail straight and openly. And then you can just walk through our like 
transparency dashboard, for example, we're gonna unleash some predictions in the next uh, few weeks to for you to play around. So yeah, stay in touch and um, give us feedback. Awesome. Thanks again, David. This has been great. Thanks a lot. See you around, sir. See you around. Bye. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode of the Ownership Economy. Don't forget to like and subscribe.